Good morning. Why is everybody scooting to the back? Will was up here. She was up here. This is it's not very encouraging. Ben's finally coming back up. Everybody went to the back. Actually, I could if you got. It's a little dim up here. What's up, JJ? You know, anytime I sit in the back of the class, it's because I usually have less accountability in my life. I'm joking. That's just me. That's just me. Well, good morning. Let's open up in prayer. We'll get started here. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for this time. God, I thank you for the opportunity, God, to just be able to gather here with these men each Saturday morning, God, to learn more about you, God, to discipline ourselves, God, in our walk with you. God, I pray for strength. God, I pray for your anointing upon this time. God, I pray, Father, that we leave here differently than the way we came in. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. All right, so we got, uh, you made it here, so now from here you only got one more week left, right? Week six, and um, Pastor Ben will be doing that one for you. It looks, um, I kind of snuck ahead a little bit in the book and looked at it, and it's, um, it kind of culminates and brings everything together. looks pretty exciting. Um, but this section here, which was actually, was actually a pretty big section. There's five different disciplines that he speaks about in this section. For those of you that have the book, uh, you may have looked ahead on some of it. And I think it just hits on some pretty um, some pretty profound areas for us, specifically as uh, men, as in the church, and our roles, and how we, um, how we conduct ourselves in life in general. Um, and Derek went 10 minutes over last time, so I'm going to try and make up for it this time for you all so we can keep it even. <laughs> now, he went over. So I'll try to go 10 minutes under. No, I'm joking. I, I won't make any promises. Um, but I want to start with the first one. And it, the first one talks about the discipline of church. The discipline of church. Um, and as he goes through this, of course, it's, you know, six or seven pages in this chapter. And he's explaining the church and what it looks like. But I want us to kind of look at two sides of it. Because I think so many times, especially the world for sure, but even in our, even in our church itself as Christians, I think we... Um, this is an area that's so simple, but sometimes hard for us to really grasp what's going on. You know, when you look at just the basic definition of church, you know, you just look it up in a, on a, in a dictionary. It says it's a building for public and especially Christian worship. And I see the key word in there that they have is what? Building. But as believers, we know that that's not the key word when we talk about the church. Um, church comes from the word ecclesia, which means a calling out. Or the called out ones, um, and specifically in our in this situation, is called out to a life with Christ, to a body of believers. And I think what's important for us to look here, look at in that situation, is how do we view the church? Do we view it as a building? You know, do we look at it as this is something that we just merely attend and show up to, or do we look at the church from the place of being called out into a place of something that we belong to or something that we have commitment to or something that we have we feel that we have a responsibility for because that's really what church should mean for us as believers because if each one of us shows up here on a Sunday a Wednesday you name it a Saturday morning and all we do is expect to come here and get in and take 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 and just have a good time and then walk away what is really taking place as far as the church is considered not much but when a man, specifically, and this is what this book's talking about, comes into this building where we do gather and we do meet, and he then begins to look for opportunities for people around him to pour into and, and, and vice versa for himself, then the body is empowered, is emboldened, and that's when strength and change happens. So I think it's very important we understand that the church is an institution of Christ, and it has a very important role for us, and it's not just something that we attend, and that's what he's breaking into here. He quote, I got a quote here from the book where he says, but we must not mistakenly reason that one's relationship with Christ minimizes the importance of his church. You know, because I think so many times, I mean, it's okay. There's no doubting that obviously salvation in Christ through grace alone is, is what we hang our hat on as Christians, right? 
But I think so many times we, we get to that point, and then we just, that's where we stop. And we don't look at the next part of the process where there's the building up of the church and how we now belong and have commitment to that. And that's what he's saying, that we can't forget about the church and the importance and the role that it plays. It says also that men on the most elementary level, this is addressing you guys here. This is a quote from the book. You do not have to go to church to be a Christian, and you do not have to go home to be married either. But in both cases, if you do not, you will, not have, a very, you will have a very poor relationship. You know, and that's... It kind of really simplifies it, and I mean, I, you know, but the reality is, you know, we, there's something that's required of us in that relationship. And that's what's required of us is not what allows us to have that relationship. It's not what gives us that, that standing with Christ, but it now affords us that opportunity to be able to reach the people around us, believers in the church and non-believers just the same. You know, there, he, he speaks about some different growth benefits of attending church, one being worship. Two, the hearing of the word. Three, the attendance at the Lord's table. Four, discipleship. And five, vision and mission. And I look at those things there, and I mean, just look at on a basic Sunday morning, and every one of those can fall into place. You know, anytime we meet, obviously, we meet at a time for worship. You know, we, we, we get there and we listen to the hearing of God's word. And I just, I think for us as the church, that has been. Um, and when I say that, I mean I mean the Christian church in America as a whole. That part of the service, in so many ways, has been minimized. When we talk about the hearing of the word, you know we you know we look at it as just our, it's just a daily dose. You pop in there, you get what you need. But guys, whenever whenever the word of God goes forth, whenever our, one of our pastors stands up there and he, we break open that Bible, that's the very spoken written word of God for us. It's available to us, and I mean that should be something that's heavy heavy on us throughout that service and something that we look for and it's a benefit for us we get the attendance at the lord's table we share with one another we get to share in communion at different times talks about discipleship and this is just an area for me that i just i I guess passion is a good word um because it's it's what advances the church it's what advances the kingdom of god you know i see you know i've seen it play out in my own life on both sides of it you know on the receiving end and the giving end and both are necessary, but just the, just the opportunity to build this. But I mean, think about it. In a, in a common week for us, the guys that you meet with on Sunday, the guys we meet here on Saturday morning, in most cases, how many more times during the week do you see them? Most cases, none. You know, and we miss out. We we strictly just by not being in, being part of the church, being a a member of a church, we miss out on that opportunity. Just something that's so easy for us right there. And then vision and mission. That's just such an important role um, for our, for pastors and our leadership. And you know, I can remember every. I've been coming here now for 18 years, and I can remember Brother Renee, you know, and you know, and one of the first things that was just profound to me is each year he would get up and he would speak his vision and his mission for the church for that year. You know, we knew obviously with the general idea of what was going on, but he always made it a point to be specific of what area, you know, the church was going to be moving in that direction. And that's not just for pastors, guys. That's for, that's for you as men in your families and your friendships, particularly in your families, that you are the one that cast a vision for your family on where they're going to go and what direction you're going to move in. Because if not, you just find out years down the road, you just, just wandered all over the place. But church gives us that opportunity to be able to lock in and have vision and to have mission. You know, it, in order for us to be disciplined to do something, it has to be done on a regular basis, right? I mean, that's what this whole study has been about, the fact that you have to discipline yourself. Um, so studies have shown, and I guess this would even be scientific, that it takes over 300 times to do a repetitious motion to develop muscle memory, you know, whether that's something as simple as a basketball shot, you know, pulling up a gun to shoot on something, different movements, whatever it is, put it to anything. But the idea is you have to do something repeatedly over and over again to develop a culture in your life or, what, or anything in any area. And for, and for some of us, you know, start with just simply attending church and being a part, being a part of an institution of God because it takes time. And the dis- I want to give you these different disciplines here inside of the discipline of church. The discipline of regular attendance. And I just where we strictly, we strictly put a culture in where we do things, and this is what we do. This is how we do it. You know, I think in, in my family, you know, we've, 
I grew up in that. that um, you went to church on Sunday, although it was probably at a certain part of my life out of obligation or it was what you did. Um, but what I see now is the discipline of that that my parents were instilling in me. Now, it's I don't think much of it. It's this is what we do. You know, now I believe the next step for us is once we have disciplined ourselves into doing something, we begin to think about how can we be effective in that. How do you know, we don't want it to become just this mundane um, event that takes place. So now as you grow spiritually, now how can God further use you in that? Regular attendance, the discipline of membership. Um, as many of you remember, I guess it's about, what has it been, about a year and a half ago? Somewhere in that range, we... We, we had we put in church membership here um, and it was kind of it was different for us i mean you i've i've, I've heard of that before um, never really thought much about it but the idea is you know when you become a member of something you begin to take a level of ownership of that situation you begin to realize that it's not you're not just this random hitchhiker or jumping on a taxi um, and then jumping off when you're done you're committing to that you know, the book talks about how it actually uses that analogy versus, you know, owning a vehicle versus just a taxi, for example. And let me give you my 50 cents. Let me get what I need from you. I'm going to get off when I'm done. Versus when it's your vehicle, the same thing essentially happens. It gets you from point A to point B, but now you're concerned about the gas mileage. You're concerned about the maintenance. You're concerned about how long it's going to last you. You're concerned about, man, I can't afford another one. I really got to keep it up. And it's, it just puts you, your mindset in a different place. And the same thing goes for us in church. The American church has become, you know, this taxi cab mentality where you just jump on and off as you need. You know, as long as I give a little bit to it, everything's okay. Because we need to look at the importance. You know, and I'm not, this is not a, a ploy for you to become a member here, although I would like you to be. But the idea is commit to something, to a church in your life where the word of God is preached where you can be involved, where you can take part in this act of discipleship. Get some skin in the game. The next one is the discipline of giving. You know, and that goes back to the idea of <clears throat> giving in our life. And we're going to get into, there's actually a whole other discipline that's further on. Um, so I'm not going to talk too much about here, but the discipline of giving in the church. The discipline of participation. You know, that takes it to a whole other level. We've got to discipline ourselves. You know, I consider a Saturday morning Bible study, um, you know, outside of the norm, for example, you know, an opportunity to participate in something else, um, different ministries. We've got endless ministries at this church to get involved in. Um, there's always something that you can do, you know, and don't, and that's, there's not a idea that you need to do everything and it's not the more you do the better, but get involved. Now I was talking to my, me and my wife were kind of just, as I was reading this book, I just, it keeps spurring thoughts, and we got to talking about different things. You know, I was this particularly participation. I said, you know, I said we do participate, obviously, um, but I'm, you know, as with my boys growing up, I thought, you know, we were talking. I said, you know, how much, how much stuff do we do right now? If you look at a picture of our life and you split it up into a pie, you know, and how much time's allotted for different things, and yes, you know, there's a lot of things that I believe we. We do well with regards to discipling our children. But one thing I find we lack in is, is we talk a lot about serving, and we talk a lot about servanthood, and you, it takes place in our home and our family. But what about, what about outside of that? You know? And it, it got me thinking about it this week from that little storm that had passed through, you know, and just how much opportunity is out there for us all the time to be able to just to meet people in their place of need. And for me, with my children, to not only talk to them and tell them about it, but to show them what that looks like, you know, to sacrifice things in our life that um, what he's trying to get across in this book here is that leadership is not so much a title as it is an action. Leadership is an action that we take place in. And it's, as men, we are in a place of leadership um, in the church, in our home, at work. We are to adopt this, this discipline of leadership. This quote here from the book says, Male leadership in the church is on the decline as women outnumber men. For men compromise only 41% of adult church attenders. And some smaller churches cannot find even one man to fill the office of elder. He also says, No one attains true spiritual leadership who thinks his power is in his own or his past victories due to his own genius. 
But the backbone of any work done by God is prayer. And it's just this picture here of, first of all, the problem we have in, our, in, the, in the American church, really in society as a whole, but of men stepping into this place and assuming this position of leadership. And I think it goes back to what he talked about in the, in the discipline of church, is that we have this drive-through mentality in America. You know, it's what can I get, what can I do, borrow us for a second to get what I go on to the next thing. And we've missed the idea that leadership and that discipline of being that is, is to, right here, the capacity to lead. I think it's the best part of that definition, the capacity to lead. And we all have the capacity to lead in some form or fashion. And we need to adopt that, excuse me, as part of it. And so much of that is, in order for us to do that, especially in the church, is what is, you know, what is your personal prayer life and your personal worship look like? You know, what is, what is that time, that time you spend on a daily basis with God look like? Is it there? Is it not there? Is it good? And I think in so many, so many situations, that will directly affect, first of all, the effectiveness, and then even, your, even the, the desire to, to lead in those situations. There's no spiritual leadership. He says this in the book as well. There's no spiritual leadership apart from passionate devotion, from passionate devotion. So I just would ask you this, you know, how do you evaluate your prayer life and your worship time? You know, you don't have to give answers here. But allow you, you know, write that question down, and then as you're, you know, as you're spending time tonight in the morning, whatever it is, honestly evaluate that in your own life. You know, and it's, it's not meant to, it's not, the idea is not to, to shame, but I think as men we really struggle a lot of times with really being honest on where we stand in a certain area. Because we tend to say, well, you know, I got this, you know, it's okay, it's okay, it's good. Um, but when so many cases, you know, there's, it's, it's not as such, and it affects our ability for leadership. Numbers 11, 26 through 30. It says, now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them, and they were among those registered. But they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to them, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them? And the Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. And I just think it's, a, it's an interesting passage where you see that, like, there's people in the camp that are moving forth with, you know, with, with God, you know, and, and, and speaking to people about it and preaching to them. And Joshua runs in there and is like, whoa, 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 Moses, we got a problem. You know, other people are doing what you're doing kind of thing. And, and, of course, Moses says right there, he says, are you jealous for my sake? You know, and the point he's trying to make is this isn't about me. This goes back to this goes to God, you know, and for us, that goes back to our, you know, we may have the ability to speak. We may have the ability to relate well with one another. We may have the ability to, you know, find commonality, and, and we do well in relationships. But ultimately, when we get to the spiritual aspect of what's taking place there, who's responsible for that? Christ and Christ alone. And the, and the, and the reason why that is, plays a part in our life is because of who God is in your life, who he is in your prayer time, who he is when you get into his word. And I just think it's so important because, once again, as men, we like to we like, to like ourselves a lot of times. It's what, we, it's, what we, it's what we do naturally. And when God's a part of that, that's when the difference takes place. We need to be careful of the self-promoting spirit. You know, John 3.30 says, He must increase, and I must but I must decrease, right? That's like a profound scripture. He must increase, but I must decrease, because that fights against everything of, a selfish, of the selfish man to take place. It also says in the book that leadership must have a dream, a vision, a mental image, a precise goal of what is to be accomplished. And that's not an easy task, you know. I think about it, you know, even in my own family, in the workplace, um, when you're in when you're in leadership, you know you're you're in a place of of looking ahead, of trying to see 
what's down the road. Not only I'm not saying just in the you know safety or security or protection aspect, but also what's life look like for you in the next so many years. You know, I, I may have mentioned this the other night. Once again, you know, Rachel and I were sitting down talking, and I was thinking, you know, my oldest boy is 10 years old, and I think, you know, I've got about five more years, probably, where he's, you know, still a kid, where we still have, you know, it's 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 fun to hang out all together, and then at about, because I remember my life at about 15, I was first of all I had a driver's license, which just is crazy, um, <laughs> but I was out doing everything. You know, I was with I was with friends, I was hanging out. You know, you just. Not that you obviously still live at home, but your focus begins to shift, especially in boys. I mean, that's that shift that begins to take place to prepare them for manhood. You know, so we looked at what, you know, in this next five years, what are we going to do? You know, we do a lot of things together, okay? We do, particularly our boys do a lot of sports, and that was the one area that I think is the biggest opportunity for us because, like I was telling I said, you know, I said, we do a lot with them in sports, but that's just it. We just, it's just like a long for the ride. It's like a shuttle service so many times, you know, from practice to game. But what do we do intentionally to where, you know, we can have the opportunity to have discussion. We can have the opportunity to right wrongs. We can have the opportunity to praise good things and back and forth. And that goes for us, you know, in our lives, it's all a different area. Some of us is with young kids. Some of us is with grandkids. Some of it's just your wife. You know, some of us are in this place where it's just you and your wife, and you've got the rest of your life to live out. And what do you what do you do together? Do you just let it happen and see what takes place? As leaders, as men of God, we are called to have a vision, to have a dream, to have a passion, and something that we're moving towards. And that, I guess, in some ways, is the easy part because then he breaks down the four there. He says, one, we've got to be able to communicate that. We've got to be able to communicate that to the people that we're talking to. And then we've got to be able to delegate and orchestrate. You know, one of the things that we took on was um, we, we're going to get into canoeing. So, I've, so we purchased two canoes, a uh, handful of paddles and fishing poles and everything that go along with that. And I think about just that process in of itself, and this is kind of in the physical, something simple. But, you know, when we're preparing to leave for something, everybody gets a job. You get the life jackets. You get the fishing poles. You get this. You get this. We all meet up here. And we, you know, we get everything together. But the idea is, as if if I was not, and this is a very simple analogy, but if I don't point in those decisions, guess what? Them kids are like stray cats. They are everywhere. I mean, they're just playing by that point, right? But it's in that we we build discipline as leaders whenever we're able to orchestrate and to delegate things that are going on and and show by example, and then demonstration, the importance of demonstration. You know, it's one thing for us to say it. It's the next thing for us to do it. He talks about a, an object lesson, and I thought it was pretty neat. That's what I got on the table here. And he talks about a string. And he talks about, you know, when you pull a string, right, it follows along with no problem. It comes just like you need to. Now, it's got its kinks and its issues that come along with it, but the idea is it follows you. And that's, where, that's the picture of us as leadership. But if we're on the back side of leadership, look what happens. It just piles up. It's the same amount of energy. It's the same amount of effort that we put out, but there's no effectiveness in what takes place here. It just piles up and balls up behind us. As leaders, we're, we're on the front side. We're demonstrating and showing what it looks like to actually do that. And the idea is for, for us is that at some point that the people that are in that situation, whoever that may be from your family to a whole church, that they begin to adopt the very same thing in their own lives and begin to do the same thing. We've got to be able to demonstrate it. And then ultimately we've got to be determined. We've got to be able to be in a place where we don't quit. You know, because sometimes pulling that rope is frustrating because people behind you either don't stay in line, they complain, they get aggravated, you get tired. You know, and it comes to a place where you just want to, it's tough sometimes. And this is where the discipline comes in. We've got to be determined that that same vision and that same goal and that same passion that you started off with is still playing out in your life, and you're still able to move with that and move people along with you. So that's the discipline of leadership. Next one is the discipline of giving. The discipline of giving. One of the things that he really brings out, and I'm going to read this quote here, and we'll talk about it a little bit. But he says, a growing delusion that this world is everything 
that someday they will be content and that providing for one's family means being able to give them more and better. The relationship will be enriched by wealth and that wealth will make people better. You know, in that where we are in America, especially, especially, and then even in the Christian church, it's always we, we gauge our providing for uh, based on what things we are able to do. And I think all of that is really innocent in most cases. I'm not trying to say that we should not try to, to better. But I think the, the problem comes in for us is we begin to look at that as the very basis for how we define our lives. You know? And that's where the problem is. Look, we live in America. Okay? The reality is, is we have way more here than we really need. And it's, it's, it's where we are. Okay? This is where we live. You know, if we lived elsewhere in the, in the world, it would, be, it would affect us the same way. Um, and, I mean, you can't, I guess you could go just off the grid, uh, but that in else leads another problem of the discipline of church and leadership. Um, but the idea is we've got to, it, it's tough for us here in America to really see what is success and really what we need to do to move about. Second Corinthians 8, 1 and 2, I want to read first, it says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the church of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflown in a wealth of generosity on their part. And he's talking about the church there, just in there. And this way, remember, the discipline of giving. And he's talking about the Macedonian church here who's just just given and given and given to the church there. And just their abundance of joy even in, even in their even in their poverty, the next part he says the um, excuse me yeah, and then he quotes in the book he says the grace of he calls this the grace of giving has nothing to do with being well off, and it is not dictated by ability, it is a willingness to give giving is viewed as a privilege and is a joyous joyously enthusiastic and pleads for the opportunity to give more. And the idea where he's talking, trying to get in the book here is just this, this discipline of giving because it goes against what we do, right? Um, now, he's going to particularly talk as we move into this um, in the, the giving of essentially wealth to, to the church because that's what's happening here with the Macedonians. But he's trying to get us to first to see why when it comes to giving in a, in a take culture, it's tough. He also says in verse 6 and 7, it says, accordingly. We urge Titus that as he started, so he should, he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, in your love, and in our love for you, see to that you excel in the act of grace also. And the act of grace they're talking about there is this act of this giving, this being able to be disciplined in giving. Um, you know, and this is always, always ends up being... A tough spot for us when it comes to forgiving because then everybody automatically begins to think about tithing and um, nobody's going to tell them what to do. And, um, you know, so many times in church is something that's just tiptoed around um, and we feel like it's the one thing that gets talked about because it's supposed to be talked about. Um, but really what he, the author's bringing out in the book here is that, you know, the – that the, the tithe and the thing that he's going to talk, speaks a little bit more is really just a is just a response to the believer's heart and just to where they are and their eyes. I mean, it goes back to the part about church, about being not to being a member of something, not only just showing up for something, but having some skin in the game. He actually breaks down. He does start talking about tithing here, and he breaks down where the history on that. Um, and I'm not going to I'm not going to read through. It. I'll just give you the quick thing. But he talks about the three different in the Old Testament, the three different tithes. They had the Lord's tithe, the festival tithe, and the poor tithe, which all amounted to over twenty something percent um, givings by the church. And the way that it was designed, it was for to, to be able to take care of the church, and not only the church, but for widows um, and for the um, the the poor. I guess would be the best word to put for it in that time as well. And he's bringing out the idea that the necessity of that giving was for the very existence for that to take place. Um, in Matthew six nineteen through 21, you know, it says, and actually I don't have it here, but it says, read the whole thing. It says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on heaven where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, 
But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where the thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, and that's the key verse here, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And he's shown us this, he's shown us this picture of, you know, look at our lives and evaluate where our treasure is, the things that we put um, emphasis on in our lives. You know, I think so many times I think about tithing, for example, a lot of times and you look at, you know, um, you know, what I'm always careful of is for that to not become a, a religious act in our lives. And I think the way we do that is we look at we look at the fact of it coming from a heart of giving from being disciplined in giving for this desire that we want to be a blessing to the things that we're a part of. OK, and. I look at my life so many times, and I think when, you know, times get in a pinch, and it's like, well, you know, I could, I could slack off on, on my tithe amount, right? Because that's, that's, that's low-hanging fruit for us as Christians. But then I also think, well, but if I gave up this, then I wouldn't have to give up that. Am I, and, 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 and really all I'm looking at there is am I willing to give up this other area? You know, or am I quick to give up, or not to give up, but to pull back on being able to bless other people, whether that comes to a form of a tithe, whether that's a ministry outside of the church, whether that's someone else in our life. And it puts a quick check in my spirit that, like, are you really as, is it really as much of a problem as it is, or are you just looking for the opportunity to be able to just get something else that you want? And he's just trying to show us this picture that there's a dis- we need to be disciplined in our giving at whatever level that looks like. You know, but in the church is where we have that opportunity to do so um, and, in any form of fashion. We, you know, obviously, money's always talked about, but what about your, what about your time? You know, going back to what about the, the talents that God's blessed you with? You know, there's opportunity for us to be in a place of, always, of wanting to give and to fight against this culture of always wanting to receive. And get back. And he talks about two different things. We got to have dis- mental discipline inside that. Giving should never be decided casually or flippantly, but through serious prayer, asking God what He wants you to give. You know, so we need to have mental discipline when it comes to that, because the idea is not for us to just heap it all on ourselves, right? The idea is for us to have the opportunity to bless other people. But where does God? Where is He leading you in that to be effective in that? Sometimes it's just simply because of a need for a ministry. Sometimes it's going to be when you engage in that, you're going to, you're going to meet someone. Someone's going to meet you. You know, don't, don't take that casually when it comes to giving. You know, because it goes back to, at that point, you are, you are pouring in to God's institution. You are pouring into the church in that situation for its growth. And then he talks about volitional discipline, which is where we actually make a choice to do something. When we do something with volition, it's a choice, it's a, it's a, it's a desire, it's something that we've, de- we've chose or we've determined to do at that point. Giving is an act of worship. And when it's done and it's all in, in its purity, um, at any level, I mean, you know, you know how it is for in your life, for those of you that have taken part of that. But it is an act of worship. And he closes in this section with Romans 12, 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And it's just bringing this picture back to what ultimately we're, we're doing here, is that all of this is, is in response to what God, what Christ did for us in our lives. You know, that our lives are an act of worship in everything that we do. We don't compartmentalize, well, when I'm at church, I do Jesus. When I'm at work, I do this. When I'm at home, I do this. No, our entire life... And everything that we do is an act of worship. And that's just one part of it. Then he moves into the discipline of witness. The discipline of witness. I'm going to go through a couple different quotes that he puts in here. He says, but in the normal average avenues of everyday person-to-person witness, the things Christian can do. But in the normal average avenues of everyday, excuse me, person-to-person witness, the things any Christian can do regardless of their gifts or calling. So he says that he's just painting this picture that person-to-person witnessing is something that we all have the ability to do. There's nothing that there's no requirement there to meet before you can do that. That's what you were able to do. 
He says, men, we must not let the self-evident nature of truth dull us to its profundity, which is this, that the most immediate and personal one's knowledge of Christ and the more natural is to share him with others. Think about that. You know, what's the, what's the most easy thing for you when you're with somebody else for you to talk about? What's some ideas? What's the easiest thing for you to talk about? The weather? Yourself? Sports? Things you care about. That's what, I, that's, what I, that's, what he, that's what he brings out in the book is, is the very things that are important to you. And then all these other ones are also, I, I line up with that because they're, they're easy, you know. So the old idea is whatever is nearest and dearest to you, whatever is the most in the front, that's become what becomes the easiest to talk about. And if your relationship with Christ is that in your life, then guess what happens? That's where your, your, your focus is. Now, you may be talking about guns. You may be talking about weather. But ultimately, there, there's this idea that I'm going to have an opportunity to be able to witness. You know, or this guy's all of a gun going to say something in response to a very normal comment. And then you like, I mean, how many times have you been in that situation where you're like, oh, this is, this is the place to, I guess attack's not the right word, um, but to take that opportunity, right? You know, and how many times it's just that unbeknownst to that other person you're speaking to, that's why, why they were there. But that's why you both were there. So this idea of personal witness has to be important and be intentional in your relationships. You know, when you pass somebody in church, for example, let it not be just a casual you know, handshake, fist bump, and move on, you know. Be looking to see if that person is in a place where they're needing to be ministered to. And the same thing for yourself. You know, I said this earlier so many times. Hey, man, how you doing? Oh, man, everything's good, right? I'm always taken back when somebody actually says something different. You know, I'm like, oh, all right, I wasn't. You know, because how many times we even ask the question and we don't expect to get anything back. We expect to get that same thing, you know, just this pump, pump, done, and we move it on. But, guys, be intentional in that and give yourself the opportunity to witness. We must re- he also says we must repeatedly expose ourselves to the raw realities of Christ. And I think this is so important because we've got to have something that we center back on. We've got to have that moral absolute in our life that brings us back always to this one spot. And that, for us, is Christ and Christ alone. And what he did for us on the cross. And I think if we don't continually, as men, as believers, don't bring ourselves back to that, guess what happens? You drift. You know, you begin to move over to the area of, of feel good or good ideas. You know, just like we were talking about on Monday nights with the Colossian church, there was no dead center. You know, I mean, look at our society today. I saw this uh, article. This, actually, uh, someone sent me this article this past week discussing how now there's this idea out there of, you know, we've been dealing with the transgender and homosexuality and all that, and now it's starting to take a turn to this position where they don't know what they are. It's, uh, I don't even remember what, it's like a gender, I think is actually how it's labeled, okay? And I mean, that is just so sad, you know, and as we dialogue back and forth about that, you know, that was, that was the theme that came up, because when there are no rules, guys, when there are no standards in our lives, you just make up whatever you want. You just move about, and you just and you whatever feels good and whatever seems right. But we've got to be able to be, we've got to always be able to bring it back to Christ and the raw reality of what took place for us on that cross at Calvary. Because if we don't, guys, if we don't remember that, then we just go off into this other direction. He also says our attitude makes all the difference in bringing people to Christ, and we have to have a belief in the sufficiency of Christ. You know, so many times in that relationship, you know, in that time you're talking there, you know, what is really being said? You know, is, is the sufficiency of Christ evident in that speech of that person is there? You know, whether it be a believer or a non-believer. You know, are you preaching Jesus in that situation? I want to read a couple of things from here that he speaks about. And if you have the book, I'm going to be on page 207. The American Institute of Church Growth surveyed some 8,000 church attenders and found that 1 to 2% were, were people with special needs, 2 to 3% were walk-ins, 5 to 6% were influenced to come by a particular preacher, 
two or three percent came because they liked the church program. One or two percent because they responded to a visitation effort. Four to five were reached by Sunday school. A half a percent came through evangelistic crusades and TV programs. And a whopping 75 to 90 percent came through the influence of friends or relatives. Clearly, the personal, ordinary Andrew approach is the most effective aspect of evangelism. Where does it happen, guys? It's in the personal relationships that we have one with another. And that just goes back to the importance of the body of believers and the church and the idea this is the, the, those are the ones that are called out by Christ and are able to work together because that is where the effectiveness takes place. On 280, also says, in addition, search ministries, an organization dedicated to equipping the church for lifestyles evangelism, tells us that about 0.01% of Christians are gifted to do proclamational preaching evangelism. <coughs> and about 0.05 to 10% for confrontational witness, while 100% can do relational evangelism. 100%. You know, so I mean, like, I think so many times we do that. We think, well, I can't evangelize. I can't get out there and share. But why? Well, I, can't, I don't speak well. I don't do this. I don't that doesn't, that, as you can see right there, it has very little, it is an aspect, and it is important, but it can't be the excuse that we have as men. Relational evangelism, you know, the preaching of God's word, the teaching of God's word, one to another in a group setting like this, is where it takes place. We can't minimize that, guys. 100% can do, I thought that was pretty interesting. You know, I don't know, maybe they slightly made that up, but the idea is 100%, anybody can do relational evangelism and then he goes to the next part here and it's called the discipline of ministry the discipline of ministry and i'm going to actually start off by reading another one on page 212 he says of course the effects of these two kinds of hearts he's it'll make sense here in a second are drastically different Little hearts, though safe and protected, never contribute to anything. No one has benefits from their restricted sympathies and visions. On the other hand, hearts that have embraced the disciplines of ministry, though they are vulnerable, are also the hearts which possess the most joy and leave their heart print on the world. And he gives some examples for us to kind of put into perspective. Cultivate deafness, and we will never hear discord, but neither will we hear the glorious strains of the great symphony. Cultivate blindness, and we will never see ugliness, but we will also never see the beauty of God's creation. Or to put this in the terms of a common experience, never play baseball, and you will never strike out. But you will also never hit a home run in the bottom of the ninth with the bases loaded to win the game. Never climb a mountain, and you will never see, and you will never get banged up on the mountainside, but you will also never stand on an alpine peak exalting in abundant natural beauty. And he goes back to here to discipline of ministry. And what that means for us. And that if we live this life of just, you know, together and, and, and safe, and we don't ever get outside of where we are, you'll probably be safe. And you'll also never experience um, or never even get the chance to be a part of what Christ is doing in life around us. And ministry is where that takes place. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 says, Be imitators of me. As I of Christ, Paul says that in there. And I just think that that is extremely profound. I know when I first, I don't want to say when I first read this verse, but when I first started looking at it, I mean, it's just like, that's a bold statement that Paul makes there. Um, and it's the one that you and I can make as well. But to be a, to be imitator, so that's basically for me to walk up to Donald and say, Donald, you just do what I do because I'm following Christ. I mean, put that in the natural. I mean, look at any of the person next to you, and I'm not, you know, maybe we hold up to it or maybe we don't. But that's, that's where we're, that's the idea, guys. That's where we talk about when it goes back to leadership. You know, when you can say that, you're in a position, you know, where you've disciplined yourself in leadership to be able to say that and have, and it doesn't mean you don't have fault, okay? But the idea is if, if, you're, if you're speaking to a younger Christian, if you're speaking to a non-believer, what you're saying is, hey, man, if you want to see what it means to follow Jesus, if you want to see what it means to do what he does, watch me. And I'm going to show you. And I'm going to bring you through this process. 
he has a uh, he has a quote in here. He says, "Show me a great church, and I'll show you some tired people, both up front and behind the scenes." And the picture he's trying to paint here, and you know, so many times in Scripture, you know, he talks about how we how we toil and we struggle. Paul talks about for the gospel, and when we look at those words, what they mean? They all mean up into the point of exhaustion. You know, he was in this place in time with ministry where that's just what they, that was day in and day out. And for, for Christ, we have to be disciplined to build a labor for the ministry. You know, I guess I always, I check myself when I say, I kind of get nervous when I talk about stuff like this, because I think there's also this idea, not this idea, but what can happen is, is if we're also, if we're not disciplined in how we do this, then we end up just being wild. You know, we end up getting ourselves in so many different things, and we actually we, we miss the things that are going around us. For, for me, in my situation, my family, you know, heavily involved in ministry, obviously, but I've got to realize that that's, that's my first ministry, you know. So when we look at the idea of toil and exhaustion and, and discipline ourselves and being busy about the work of God, that doesn't mean that you neglect other areas of your life. You know, there has to be that disciplined balance in our lives. You know, if you say, well, I'm going to do this every Saturday, okay, or are you doing it by yourself, or are you bringing your family along, you know, are you in a position where you're doing ministry together? Because remember, that's the all this is no Lone Ranger mentality here in Christianity. This idea of ministry is people, is, is the body working together. 2 Corinthians 11, 27 through 28 says, in, in toil and hardship. Though many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, and often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And that's Paul's just, he's just speaking again. He's just relentlessly out there speaking to the church and just over and over again. You know, if we go through all of the epistles, we see that that's just, that's what he did. He went from church to church, preaching and teaching and doing it. Just, and for us, I believe it's just a picture of, the importance of being disciplined in that. And being disciplined to reach out. There actually is one more section here on page 216. I thought this, this is, there's, the book's talking about the story when Jesus met the woman at the well. And he kind of gives a little bit of uh, information here as to what's going on. I just thought there was, this was interesting because I think it applies in our life so many times. But he says the Samaritan woman was amazed at Jesus' forward conduct. But to the Jews, it was an even more outstanding story. The hatred between Judea and Samaria went back over 400 years and centered around racial purity. For while the Jews had kept their purity during the Babylonian captivity, the Samaritans had lost theirs by intermarrying with the Assyrian invaders. This, in the Jewish eyes, was unforgivable, and they looked down with disgust on the, on the compromising, compromising mongrel Samaritans. Predictably, the Samaritans built a rival temple on Mount German, only to have it destroyed by the Jews in the Maccabean times. So in Jesus' day, the hatred was ingrained and utterly implacable. And the rabbis would say, let no man eat the bread of the Kuthites, which was the Samaritans, for he who eats their bread is as he who eats swine's flesh. And the crowning, this is not scripture, this is what was rabbi. And the crowning vilification came in the sulfurous Jewish prayer which concluded, and do not remember the Kuthites in the resurrection. Thus we see that Jesus' reaching out to this woman was a racial breach, a radical breach of racial and religious convention. Now I think when you look at that story from what was going on in their culture, there's a lot, there's a lot more going on there. It wasn't just as simply he happened to run into this woman. For him to engage in that was a, was, a, was a big deal in that time. And the book is here. He brings out the point that we've got to be disciplined in reaching out. Because once again, it's easy for us to reach out to those that we're comfortable with, for those that look like us, for those that sound like us, those that talk like us, share the same interests as us. You know? But what about the person that you feel like you have zero connection to? What stops you in that situation from being able to reach out to that person? You know, I know for myself, the thing that I just I pray continually because I saw it as an issue in my life is that when I see people, that I can hopefully see them at some level of the way Christ sees them. You know, because so many times we, we ride down the street, we're watching something on TV, and we see 
for us, it's all different things depending on background. But all of a sudden, you begin to just look at this person with a level of disgust. And it's like, why? I mean, that's not, that's not as believers, that's not what Christ has called us to. I mean, we are to look upon these people with compassion. I think about the picture of Christ when he had compassion on the multitudes or just what that meant. I mean, it was all people from all walks of life, thousands upon thousands, and he's just moved with compassion. Because without that, you're not going to reach out. Without that, you're not going to be in a place to build a minister to those people or if that opportunity does come that you minister to them. And then also to be disciplined in perspective. Psalms 37, 23 says, The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. And I think that's so important that we have discipline in our perspective. That when we look at a situation and that our perspective is from that of Christ. That when we look at something, you know, it takes, remember we talked about that dead center where we come back to, we remember the raw realities of what Christ did. And that's where our perspective as men has to be formed. We have to be in a place where we look at a situation the way Christ would have seen it and from the perspective of what he did for us. And, you know, I think about um, this whole book's talking about, obviously, discipline. Um, we talked about in the first part in Corinthians nine twenty-seven, where Paul says he disciplines his body. You know, and he brings it into subjection, not as one who beats the air. And so that, in the, so that he's not proven wrong when he begins to share, when he begins to be around other people and begins to preach and to teach, that his life is an example of that. But he says he has to be disciplined, you know. And there is, a, there is an aspect of physical that ta- has to take place for us as men, that we've got to make a, dis- a conscious effort and decision that we're going to do this. And the reason why we're going to do it is for one reason, because of what Christ did in our life and nothing else. That's where we've got to be. We've got to bring, you know, guys, we like it simple, right? We like A, B, C, 1, 2, 3. And that's what it is for us, that we do what we do because of what Christ did for us, plain and simple. And then we move on from there. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time. God, I thank you for these men. God, I pray that as we leave this place, God, that your, your words and your spirit, God, is heavy on our heart. God, heavy unto change and to conviction. And God, ultimately, Father, to get out to reach a lost and to a dying world. I thank you, Father, for the sacrifice on the cross. And in Jesus' mighty name, amen.